Blog Talk Radio. Marcia Joyner, your host, with Betrayed by Hospice. Thank you, Marty. If during our program you have questions or comments, select one and you will be put into a queue to speak at a breaking point. This talk show is a forum to warn people that the hospice you once thought was compassionate and came in at the end of life to give care and support to the patient and the family is no longer that hospice in many cases. We don't say all hospices are bad. Some people have had positive experiences and received compassionate care and support. Many of our previous guest speakers, as well as myself, have experienced a very different hospice, one that hastens patients' death without their knowledge or consent. Unsuspecting people's lives are being shortened by hospice with opioids, antipsychotic drugs, resulting in a horrible death of starvation, and dehydration and leaving behind families who were shocked at having witnessed their death and where they were powerless to save them. People are being enrolled who do not meet the criteria but have maybe been in and out of the hospital and they're costing money and it's cheaper to end their life. Most of the people are into their elder years, but in many cases they're not elderly and still their death is hastened by unscrupulous medical predators. Families are lied to as the patient goes into a coma and medical staff say it's the dying process. The drugs they mostly use are morphine, Ativan, Haldol, fentanyl, and Seroquel. The same words, the same lies are told to each family like in a script, the same as the drugs that they use to render the patient incapable of speaking. It slows the breathing and they become unconscious and unable to swallow, and they ultimately die from the drugs and dehydration, a terrible way to end their time before it's time for them. It is our intent to inform people about the potential dangers, terminology, and red flags of the current hospice. Stealth euthanasia is happening across the country as elderly and disabled are being targeted for early death and deemed unworthy of life. You have the right to question doctors' decisions, refuse drugs, be part of the plan, and refuse hospice altogether if you don't want to go that way. Never accept what they're being told without verifying it. Don't enroll your family without knowing what the plan is. You have a right to insist that they tell you what they're going to do, what drugs they're going to use, and what are those drugs going to do. People are being told that hospice will help the patient and the family with care. They'll bring food. They'll provide sitters. They'll allow the patient to be at the home and not have to go to the doctor's office for visits. All of this is true, but it doesn't come without a price. Once they're in to your home, the medical staff start trying to push drugs on the patient, which will start the initiation process of the end. They may have a headache, and the hospice says, give them morphine. 
They might be anxious, so they give them Ativan or Haldol. They might be having a hard time breathing, so they say morphine will help them breathe. All of these statements are not true in most cases, and they will render your loved one unable to speak, think, and ultimately shorten their life. It is called stealth because it sneaks up, and all of a sudden your loved one is in a coma, and they say it's a dying process, and it now is because they will die, not from a disease or old age, but from the drugs and dehydration. Many of our guests have seen this happen, as I have. We've seen the horror and have gone through medical records line by line, and if an unbiased person were to read the records, they would also agree that the cases were outright death by excessive opioids, antipsychotic drugs, starvation, and dehydration. If anyone was young and healthy and given these same drugs in the same amount of time, they would have died too, but not from any disease, but from the drugs. The cases are real, and yet the main media and the government is ignoring what is happening because it saves money. That's what it's about. Today, our guest speaker is a nurse who has been in the healthcare industry for over a decade. She has worked beside hospice nurses, and she has seen people's death hastened by drugs, stealth euthanasia. She loves working with the elderly and is totally against euthanasia. We're respecting her right to not provide her name or where she lives to protect her identity. So thank you for agreeing to come on and give us a look inside what happens at many facilities with the elderly when someone makes a determination that it's time for their life to end. Can you share with us a bit about your background and how you came to witness euthanasia agenda that exists in healthcare and give us some experiences that allowed you to see this truth? Absolutely. Thank you so much, Marcia, for this opportunity to be here and to share these experiences. Um, when I was a young girl, I really fell in love with the health sciences, and I was really intrigued by the intricacies of the human body. And when I shadowed in an emergency room, I saw that there was such a need uh, for assistance and a need in people's lives at such a time of crisis. And that was when I really felt called to be a nurse. So I proceeded with the education and got my registered nursing degree. As my first year as a nurse, I brought several different patient concerns to my manager. And one of my very, very first evaluations by my very first manager was that healthcare was a business and I cared too much and that this I wasn't really cut out to do this kind of work. I was really leveled by this and I was really shocked because I just couldn't fathom that she would be so direct and that that would be the the agenda that took place. And so I, I was very defeated, but I did keep on. And through the time after that and through just different cases and taking care of different patients, I soon began to realize that beginning at a very high level and it trickles down that decisions are often made in healthcare that are made for monetary reasons. They are not always made for with the best intention of patients and families. And I began my work in the critical care setting in the adult care specialties in ER trauma in different CCUs, 
uh, those type of that type of environment. And um, I would often hear nurses as like a stigma if we would get nursing home patients. They would often stigmatize the nurses as that they were not as intelligent as the critical care nurses or they didn't know as much or they were less skilled. I'm not saying that every nurse held this belief, but it, it was a running trend that I had heard in these specialties. And I was given a few years into my career, I was given the opportunity to, to transition into the elderly care specialties. This wasn't something that I had planned on. It, I was continuing my education. It worked out better for my schedule. And I began working in long-term care. And I quickly fell in love with the elderly. I quickly realized what need there was for, for that specialty, for care of the elderly, for, uh, for folks who were not with all the bells and whistles of, of a hospital setting. And um, when I crossed over to that arena, I remember a former colleague of mine from the emergency room, this person uh, actually became the nursing head of trauma. So he trained all of the nurses in trauma, and this was a higher-level trauma center. So it was definitely a, an esteemed position. He brought some students to, to the nursing home. And I remember that he approached me at the desk. And what he said was supposed to be a compliment, but it was anything but. And in slightly cruder language, he asked me, you know, what I, I had such potential. Like, what on earth? am I doing here? And I was really taken back by that. And again, this was still very young in my career. I did not understand. And I, I, I wanted to defend it. Like skilled nurses should be taking care of our elderly people. You know, this could be your grandparents. Um, this could be us one day. We don't have all the lab work and testing and things like that, that a hospital does. So, you know, our assessment skills, for early pneumonia, sepsis, uh, different electrolyte imbalance. We, we, we have to really be fine-tuned to those kind of assessments. And I, I didn't really understand at that time where that spirit was coming from. And it's something that I see now. I see now that there is such a devaluation of, of the elderly. And it's almost like after all of the testing is done and they are deemed to be so old or feeble and the system has done what it can do to them. It's like almost they like lose, they, they lose value and um, they, they just kind of should go away or, or be euthanized or, or any, something like that. And um, it was, it was confusing to me at the time because I didn't see it clearly. And then uh it didn't take too long for me to be at a crossroad as well as many other nurses and doctors face of you're going to either go ahead and go along with this, the spirit and go along with that thinking um, all the way up until giving medications that are not necessary and pushing medications, um, ushering along death, encouraging dehydration, doing all of these things, or you're going to stand against it. And as, as a nurse and, and as personally as, as a Christian, I, I really decided that that's not something that I will have anything to do with. And it's not something that I will ever participate in. And I, I truly hope, Marcia, that through this conversation, 
I may offer some practical points and perspectives for family when dealing with nursing staff in regards to end-of-life issues. I've always stated that my heart has lied at the bedside. Um, I'm certainly not an administrator. I am not a businesswoman, but I, I, I truly do love caring for families at the bedside, and, and I hope that I can offer some, some listeners some, some valuable points. Well, I think that's very commendable that you feel that way and that you saw at the crossroads that they were expecting you to either go along with the program or you would be against what they were doing. And for you to take it on and to say, you know, I'll work with the elderly people because you don't really think that that's, it's, you know, it's not like it's a shameful thing to work with the elderly. And that's kind of how your colleague sort of looked at it like he looked down, you know, you're working in a nursing home or, you know, with the elderly population, what's wrong with you, right? Yes, But we need more nurses like you. That, that's the thing. We need more people like you that care and that work with the elderly and that it isn't just, you know, money thing and you just take direction and start euthanizing people. So in your experiences, have you witnessed a family member that's trying to hasten the patient's death? And in that situation, what, what would you do? Absolutely. And this is a situation that happens very frequently um, at bedside care. Um, there are so many situations that I have been faced with either personally or I've had dear friends and colleagues that have been faced with the same thing. They range from the family member encouraging increase of medication, so possibly morphine that has been given every two hours to every hour or even more frequently because they, they, they're wanting to usher things along. I have been asked directly, like, we are all in town. We're running out of bereavement time. What can you do to speed this along? And I have actually been uh, cursed out uh, by family members uh, because I have I, I have not consented to, to giving them medications. Um, I do know that colleagues in the past have been bribed. Um, there, I, none of these people have accepted the bribe to give unordered doses of medication, but I do know that this has existed. And um, in these positions, sometimes we're even asked to leave the case. You know, they do not, the families will state, like, I do not want this nurse caring for my loved one. And I can attest that there are nurses who do advocate and they do bring it to administration and they do say um, that I, I am taking care of the patient. If the patient's assessment does not show pain, uh, truly, I am not going to medicate for the family's request. And praise for those nurses and doctors, but what is so discouraging is that for every nurse that does decline that, the system itself is so conducive to that, there's that many more nurses who would step in and be almost seemed like heroic, like, fine, you don't want to do it. Well, then somebody else is going to sweep in and do it. And it's a very dangerous place for a patient to be in because the patient at this point, the person is already in an environment that is 
of a death culture. It is not a culture that is conducive to life. It's not conducive to natural death. Again, we've established decisions are often made for monetary reasons, and you're already within this system. You know, we're already functioning within this system. The system is supported. To go against it is going against the system in place from a much higher level. And then to have the person's family uh, wanting this and pushing it and giving them over to this system, really the patient, the person, how do they have a chance? And then once the medications begin and the psychotropic medications begin and the pain medications begin and the coma begins, the person cannot stand up and decline any of this at this point. And this also brings in a valuable point of the power of attorney for healthcare because the power of attorney really is intended to be an appointed decision maker if the patient cannot make decisions for themselves. So if I were to appoint somebody as my decision maker, the intent would be if I should get in a car accident or something should happen very suddenly in my life to present me in a, in a life-threatening situation, that my agent would, we've already would have had this conversation and they would be able to advocate for me and choose what I would have chosen but unfortunately this does not always happen and unfortunately if the person appoints an agent that is involved and has a viewpoint of this this death culture and is pro-euthanasia and will push for it they're working within a system that they will not have a problem finding nurses and doctors and staff to assist them right along in it um, so that's that's something very startling, but I, I think it's something that is very important to consider. Having those conversations and, and knowing who you would appoint if and when our time comes, that we, we know who would be trusted as our as our agent, as well as, you know, this creates so many conflicts within the family. Because for a person who may not be the agent, they may see this agenda and they may want to save their loved one, but there comes in so many legalities and it is such a helpless position for them to be in because if it's in writing that somebody else is the appointed agent, um, it, it becomes very difficult for them to plead that case. And in, it, it, it's just, it, it really is shocking sometimes at some of the situations that have arose and Again, there's there's just this expediation of like we we our bereavement time is ending, we all float flew in, we kind of need to wrap up these services and wrap this up so we can all get back to life. How can we usher this along? And and it's just it just really brings up a lot of these end of life issues and the importance of really talking about them and and knowing who who may advocate for us if we're ever put in this position that we cannot speak for ourselves. Right. And that it is heartbreaking when you have a family member that will want to push that person over to the edge, you know, because they're too much trouble. I don't want to deal with it. It's costing too much money. There are various reasons. And let me say at this point that we're not talking about someone who is in for, say, like cancer, a really bad, bad disease that is in a huge amount of pain and that they don't want to experience the pain and they want morphine because they know they're dying. It is, 
you know, within a day, a week, you know, two weeks. Those are not the people that we're talking about. I just want to make that mm-hmm. really clear. We're talking about people that have come in. They don't have this horrible disease that they're dying. Their only thought, their only guilt is the fact they're getting older. And then sure. you have family members who don't want to deal with them. Mm-hmm. And that's so tragic to me. And yet we have had people that have come on the show and they have talked about that and they know that it is a family member who has done this. We have lots sure. of people that have a, that experience. So what you're saying is very good that you should have a power of attorney for your medical health. But you, and you need to do it, give that to someone who you trust, who you've discussed what your wishes are, and who's not going to necessarily benefit from your death. And you don't want to wait until the point in time when you're dying or somebody's coming in and suggesting hospice or hospital. That's something that you need to discuss now with your loved ones and to get that put in place and make sure that everybody knows who is your power of attorney and where the documentation is. Keep several documentations. And one of the things when you're typing that up or or go to an attorney, you don't have to, but is that you put in there that a copy of this document is as good as the original because you may mm-hmm. have several different ones out and maybe you can't get to the bank and get the original document out. You don't want that to keep your power of attorney from being able to render mm-hmm. decisions for you, and it should be somebody you know knows how you feel and that you trust. So you're absolutely, absolutely that's a very, very good suggestion. It is so heartbreaking when you, you know, when you do see the families almost give them up to the system and it's heartbreaking enough to see the system for what it, what it truly is and how it will just, it will just go ahead and want to euthanize. And it's, it's a very helpless position and very dangerous position for a person to be in for sure. Right. Because at that point, once you've started giving them drugs, they don't know what's going on, and they cannot no. speak for themselves. And no. unfortunately, the family doesn't necessarily realize this is happening because you have individuals, medical people, saying that this is a dying process. Well, it's a dying process because you are ODing my loved one. And Correct. They're, they're not able to drink or um, eat anything, and, and they're going to die. So that's Correct. when you have to step in and stop all the drugs altogether. Yes. And take yes. them to a hospital, to emergency care. To just You don't have to listen to hospice people. Take them to emergency and get mm-hmm. them out of there. Yes. Um, so uh, that's very tragic that, that you have witnessed family members wanting to do that. So um, we were talking about the chronicle medical conditions, but are there times when somebody comes in for, I mean, on a congestive heart failure or, you know, some other chronic illness that they give them, they say, and that it's okay, and they give them psychotropic drugs for that. Yes. Um, how this looks is once a person is signed over and is quote-unquote categorized as being on hospice, you, sometimes they will often do a med review. They, they'll do a med review any time upon the admission process, and some hospices are more aggressive than others, but this is something that definitely families need to watch for. And sometimes you will see that immediately the hospice will want to discontinue all meds. And this is of concern because if the person is not 
naturally going through the dying process if they just have perhaps congestive heart failure or renal disease or diabetes or any number of those combination of things, um, they will go ahead and just stop all the meds. And, you know, one example of this is that, you know, a diabetic person that may be insulin dependent. Um, Sometimes they may let the insulin go on for a while, but insulin is expensive. So if they stop the insulin, there have been situations where perhaps the insulin has been stopped. The person was not going through the natural dying process, so their body still needed the assistance of insulin, and they've been dependent on it for many years, and their blood sugars would would elevate. And, you know, Marcia, if you and I just ate a bunch of sweets and our blood sugars got up, we would feel jittery. And if our body was unable to regulate it and our blood sugars rose over 400 or, or very high, we would be very agitated. We would not feel very comfortable. And couple that with confusion, whether it is medication-induced confusion or part of like an Alzheimer's situation, you're going to see some behaviors likely. You're going to see people trying to get out of their chairs, increasing risk of falls. Perhaps they're more combative. They're more confused. Again, dealing with Alzheimer's, you may see an increase of, you know, where am I? This isn't my home. They're fighting. They're biting. They're, you know, you're seeing all these things. But the cause of it is not something that needed really to ever be medicated with an anti-anxiety or anti-psychotropic. The cause was they have a very elevated blood sugar. And at this point, insulin can be considered a comfort med. If we get their blood sugar down, do the behavior stop? Because it's helping keep their body in check and it's helping normalize their system. And there have been situations in in hospice care where they will want to stop the insulin and they will just want to medicate this this quote unquote behavior as with and with Ativan, with other anti anxiety medications, with psychotropic medications. And that's how that behavior is managed. But the, the root cause, the elevated blood sugar, was never addressed. And certainly we're not denying that type two diabetes is would continue throughout the patient until they they pass away. We're not looking to cure the disease. We're just trying to keep them comfortable just in the same way if they got very lethargic and their blood sugar dropped under 50, if, you know, they're still willingly taking food and fluids, let's get, let's give them some milk. Let's give them some carbs, you know, let's, let's keep their blood sugar maintained by, by a balanced diet, things like this. And and that's going to help them feel better. And it's not a behavioral concern. It's, it's a demonstration of, of, your regulated blood sugar. Um, Another example is in perhaps renal failure. There have been situations where a person had become dependent on dialysis. There's two main types of dialysis and people have lived for years on dialysis. It, It filters out the toxins that the person's kidneys cannot filter out. And there have been hospice situations where they have allowed the person to get dialysis just to get the toxins out of their body. It's not intended to elongate their life. It's really just intended so they can flush the toxins out and whatever time that they have left until, till they pass, they feel better. But there are situations where they were, where hospice patients are, you know, encouraged to, to stop this. So as the toxins build up in the body, 
then of course they're going to, their skin's going to feel itchy. They're going to become agitated. They're not going to feel well. And, you know, the person may lose the ability to say, you know, I, I just, I just want my dialysis. I just want to be flushed. I know it's not going to fix my kidneys. It just helps me think and be of clear mind and, and feel better. But that may not happen. They may then just be given those same, the psychotropic drugs to medicate this agitated behavior. That, that is just so sickening. I'm sorry. Um, a general care for someone. And, you know, if you see someone that is in distress like that with, you know, either um, they need kidney dialysis or, you know, they need a diuretic or they need their blood pressure medicine or they mm-hmm. need, you know, their sugar level changed, that to me is such common care that you should be giving right. a person. And instead, you know, they're at their end of the days because you, somebody, has made that decision. Mm-hmm. And instead of giving them just, you know, typical care, you know, food, water, sugar, you know, check their diabetes, do their medicine, then you're just going to give them morphine and Mm antipsychotic drugs, which has a tendency to, you know, give give them hallucinations, give them dry mouth, perhaps make them nauseous, you know, slow their their breathing down. I mean, Mm -hmm. I, I just, it just amazes me that people can be so cruel and inhumane to an individual that's lying there and is one of the most vulnerable people and they've mm-hmm. lived their life and now they're just going to be tossed aside. It, it's just horrible. And I know it with is. you, because how you feel about it, that you're watching this and, you know, you try to, you know, do what you can to make things easier on them, that it must be incredibly difficult for those nurses who have a conscience. So it, and, it is. and that brings and, us. Go ahead. And it, um, okay, pardon me. And it does, you know, when you when you see situations where care is given like it should, and when people are asked, you know, you know, Mr. So and So, do you feel up to going to dialysis today? And you know, when you see those outcomes, and when you see that when they're given a choice, and then when you see the latter, I mean, it is just so heartbreaking. And and you mentioned another good disease process that this applies to, like in in congestive heart failure, you know, it's essentially the person's pump, their heart is not working. And um, once they take them off the diuretics, you know, they they will fill up with fluid. And at that point, diuretics become a comfort med. You know, you, they will get that, they call it the end stage congestion. They will get that congestion. Well, of course they will, because their heart is filling up with fluid and just, like you stated, they will, instead of trying to flush it out and managing it to some extent, they will load them up on Ativan and other medications like that, um, stating that, that that helps manage it. But really, the diuretic is... It it. It masks I mean, it's it. It's just Absolutely. masking it so you don't see what it is. So can you insist, as, as a family member, can you insist that, you know, once on hospice, that they continue to give them their regular medications. And I guess the problem with that is once they are to the point where they can't swallow because you have rendered them incapable of speaking or swallowing um, because you don't know what it is that they're doing to them because we're Mm -hmm. ignorant of that. So, But I would think as a family member, you would want them to continue to be given their regular medications. 
Absolutely. And when a person becomes, uh, quote, unquote, hospice status, there is such a funding element to it. Um, oftentimes, they're what is called standing orders. So there's a list of approximately a dozen medications. You've named quite quite a few of the ones: the pain meds, the um, anti the psychotic medications. There's also like some stool softeners, some Tylenol, some things like that. But it's limited then to those dozen medications, and there's a funding component to that. And so when a person becomes hospice status, uh, certainly. The family, you know, I it's encouraged for them to collaborate with the hospice staff anytime they're looking at the patient's med record. And sometimes when patients become hospice, they do lock them off a lot of meds. And, and actually, they may have been on such a so many pills, like over 20 pills or whatever it is, sometimes the patient actually becomes somewhat more, more clear-minded. But when, when the staff is going over the med list, that's the family's time to collaborate. And that is the family's time to really watch for any red flags. Like, does this make sense? You know, like if, if the patient is has a chronic disease, but they're not going through the natural dying process of some of the diseases we mentioned, um, heart failure, COPD, um, Alzheimer's disease, and they're, you know, they're still eating, they're still getting along, and they're wanting to stop the insulin, they're wanting to stop the diuretics, they're wanting to stop these things, you know, really ask, does this make sense? Or does this seem too soon? Um, does it really make sense? And certainly, if a, a patient is on quite a few meds and they're having a tough time swallowing, it would make sense to perhaps stop the very big multivitamin or stop like a, a big stool softener if they're able to take some prune juice or something like that. But it's a time for family to really collaborate with the staff and that collaboration should be there. If, if it's not, there's a red flag there and same with the med review that you know that should be happening at pretty frequent intervals you know as, as the person's plan of care goes along if something about this just doesn't make sense if we're adding some of these pain medications too quickly and we're, we're taking off medications that just seem to make sense in managing their condition that's really a red flag uh, and something for the, the family to to recognize Right, and and listening to you talk about it, um, you know, to our listeners, then you hear what the nurse is telling you, and these are things that she has witnessed herself. So I, I don't know who exactly is on our audience, but these are things that you should be sharing with other people because if they're not listening, they're not hearing this. And it, mm -hmm. it is so important to know that you're not being told the truth when you're in that situation. So mm -hmm. when, when nurses are being given unethical physical orders um, and, and they don't, you know, approve of that, how, you know, as in yourself, how do they handle that? There's so several told to give, Go ahead. Pardon me. Well, I was just going to say, if you're told to give certain medication and the person is asleep, you know, it's unconscious, and they say give them morphine. I mean, how do you handle that? Would you refuse the order, or what would you, as a, a caring, humane nurse, how would you react? I, the, the reaction would be nursing, nursing assesses. The, the foundation of the nursing profession is to assess a person, and if I had morphine orders to give, if it was something that was scheduled and 
the patient is not exhibiting any signs or symptoms of pain, if I'm having to really shake them awake to give them these medications, then that's not appropriate. Um, the medication is part of my assessment can be held for lethargy. It could be, be held for drowsiness and my documentation would reflect that. I would go ahead and phone the doctor and let him know that I held it because it was his order, but I certainly would not, would not give it. And that is really how a, a, any reasonable nurse should be proceeding. And, um, even orders when we take them, you know, we could encourage, I've encouraged physicians to, to write in the order, you know, please, you know, hold, to hold for lethargy. And it's when you start getting nurses that will either reposition the patient to induce pain or they're convinced that somehow they're somewhat in pain and if they let them wake up anymore, they're going to feel more pain. So they're just blindly giving it uh, without the documentation to support it. That's where this this agenda comes into play. This euthanasia agenda comes into play, as it relates to to fluids. There have been several situations I've known where the nurse just saw how wrong it was to withhold fluids from a person, and you know they will they will proceed or they will get the order changed to as person tolerates so that they are covered in the order, but at the end of the day, they are taking care of that patient. They're not over-medicating them, and they're not denying them nutrition. And, you know, one misconception regarding not drinking at the end of life, and, and I, I'm not sure who's listening, but this is something that is frequently stated in hospice care. When a person reaches a certain point, be it part of the natural disease process or part of this drug-induced coma that has been been given to them by these medications, a person may lose their swallowing reflex. We, we often see this even in end-stage Alzheimer's disease. A person forgets how to swallow, and then you couple that with an overuse, a misuse of these medications, and, and they do have a tough time swallowing. And the education often given to families is that if you give them fluids, you're going to make them aspirate, which means some of the liquid goes in through the lung, and it will cause congestion and much more miserable deaths and pneumonia, and that may often be thrown at families. Like, you don't want to cause them. You don't want to give them pneumonia. You don't want them to drown them in their own secretions. That's miserable, and there's a half-truth to that. I mean, so so it is, it is a lie. Certainly, a patient families should not just be rolling in with a glass of iced tea and letting them swig down a glass of iced tea. But what is not the truth that's not being told is that there is a technique. You know, there is a technique to give the, the person thicker liquids, even liquid as thick as honey. There's a way to do it, to position them up in bed, to hold their head up. You could even syringe it in very, very slowly to the, to the back of their cheek, encouraging them when the person's awake. Certainly this includes um, getting them off any unnecessary psychiatric or pain meds so that they are more alert and they can be encouraged and, you know, massaging the throat to get the liquid down. And so, that's not, it's a lie. Like certainly there is concern just feeding somebody thin liquids who has some swallowing difficulties, but that at all is not, that's not the truth of the matter. And, And these techniques, these techniques could be taught to families, you know, families could be taught how to do this. And 
and oftentimes, and like you shared, Marcia, with your mom, families are the best encouragers. You know, they the, the the patient will wake up, and and it's somebody they know and love, and and they are often, you know, as a nurse, like the best asset because the patient will will want to chirp up and and want to do better and and do that. So that is one uh, note about the the fluids that it, it's quite the misconception in that regard. Well, I I think broader than it being a misconception, I think it's an outright lie. Yes. Um, yes. And and we have heard, you know, they'll say, well, they'll aspirate, and mm-hmm. I and it is, and if they would stop giving them the drugs, they would become more alert, and then they would be Correct. able to swallow. But that would go against what it is they're trying to do, which is outright murder. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. um, I know in my mom's situation, there obviously were no eth- ethical nurses there no. because they were all playing a part. And, you know, nobody took us aside and said, you know, you should. Well, that's not true. The one um, social worker with hospice said, well, why don't you just go ahead and take your mom to the hospital and that way you'll have any, you won't have any doubt. And the nurse looked at her and gave her a dirty look. She physically backed up, and the nurse said, mm-hmm. you don't want her taken to the hospital because her um, lungs would fill up with fluid and she would die from drowning, and that's a horrible way to die. So mm-hmm. they will tell you anything, the unethical ones, not like yourself, um, but they will tell you anything to get across what their mission is, which yes. is euthanizing your, your loved one. Yes, and they don't um, so want you to know those techniques because that, again, no, like you say, not. they don't, of course not, because that would stop what they're trying to accomplish. Well, and they're trying to do, I don't know if there's a goal that they're going to do it in three days or, you know, five mm-hmm. or, you know, I mean, some people go in three days, some people it takes longer. Um, with my mom, it took longer because we actually stopped in midway and, you know, took them off the drug, took her off of the drugs until they kept hammering at us and convincing us, see, she's in pain, she's in pain, and eventually they convinced us that she was, she wasn't, Mm -hmm. and, you know, it was our ignorance, and that is what I don't want to happen to anybody else that's listening, and, you know, that's why I tell everybody and, you know, try to Mm -hmm. spread the word. So are there um, alternatives that you can use from the pain meds if, if the person is in pain? Absolutely. And this is something that is touched on in in standard nursing schools. It, you will find it in the textbook, and it generally consists of repositioning. It consists of maybe the, the person enjoys music or pet therapy or looking at familiar photos, things like that. But the full gamut of pain relief that's unrelated to just giving them pain medication is so much broader than that. And truly, it really deserves almost a whole class within itself. And what we're taught in, in school is really just very minimal as to what that looks like. There's so many different other things that could be incorporated, um, be it through essential oils or just other comfort measures that can be used to keep a person comfortable and feeling supported by loved ones and by family and also keeping them functioning um, with a clear mind without uh, 
putting them in that coma from all these medications. Right, right. So we had talked earlier about the snowball effect. So can you explain what that is? Yes. Uh, So when staff begin talking to family, they may often say, if we're going to begin them on morphine, perhaps families are very hesitant of that. You know, oh, morphine, that sounds really bad. That means somebody is dying. It's a scary medication. And you will hear uh, these unethical nurses explain that, you know, we start them off as at a low dose. It's only 7.5 milligrams. That's the typical dose, um, typical throughout the U.S. Uh, that's the typical dose uh, patients are started on. And 7.5 milligrams of morphine is not in and of itself a high dose. I'm sure um, if we were to take it, we'd probably take a good nap, but our kidneys are functioning well and we'd be able to filter it. But when you start getting problems here, you're dealing with elderly people who already have some wear and tear to their kidneys, even if they do not have a diagnosis of kidney failure. You're not dealing with a, a younger person's kidneys. And then when you start giving them these medications, like every two hours, every, you know, every four hours, every two hours, every hour, or, or even more, which is just horrifying to think of, the medication, the doses double, triple, even higher than that because it accumulates within the system. It never really has a chance to process out. And then once the patient becomes comatose, they're certainly not taking in fluid. Um, they're not putting out urine. They're not able to kind of process these medications. And so the dose becomes very, very, very high in, in the body at this point. And you could really get into easily the the person could get into some lethal doses that that oftentimes go unspoken about or unrecognized again because they're considered end of life quote unquote and it, it, it it's very frightening uh the lethal doses that can quote unquote legally be given it's very horrifying well it is and if you took that individual um i think we had um, a guest on earlier a couple of weeks ago, Liz um, Eisner, and in that situation when they they did with her husband and did toxicology, they found that mm-hmm. the amount that he had in his system of morphine would was more than what would be in uh, a junkie, a, you know, a drug person mm-hmm. that took drugs all the time and the heroin that they would have died from. He had more in his body, wow. like a tremendous amount, it, it was mm-hmm. an overdose, and toxicology, sure. you know, would prove that. So mm-hmm. um, when we were at the hospital with my mom, we were trying to, we wanted to get her out of there, and, you know, we tried giving her inshore and, you know, rubbing her throat. And, and mm-hmm. like you said, with it being mm-hmm. a family member, she was trying for us because, you know, I said, Mom, mm-hmm. I want to take you home and just, you know, please drink so that we can get you strong enough to go home. And mm-hmm. she would do that for us. So is there anything that you could suggest if somebody is in that situation that we could talk to somehow, talk a nurse who would actually have ethics, and is there something that we could see about that particular nurse that would be honest with us that we could get them aside and say, you know, what's going on and, you know, could you give us any suggestions? Because we would want to enlist their help and have them tell us, get your mom, get your mom out of here. Absolutely. So is there a way? 
Um, there's there's a couple points here, and you know there are different situations, and if you find yourself gravitating toward one particular nurse that is appearing to be ethical and is appearing to actually listen to you, they're not being pushy, they're not down-talking you, um, if you're able to be heard with this nurse, absolutely, and I think go ahead and gravitate toward that person, and you, you want that person on your team. If, you're, if, a, if you find yourself in a situation where they are giving out the red flags of being very pushy and, and, and like that down talking of you. I've, I've been in those situations on the other end of the bedside myself. Like if I don't have a white coat or I, I don't have a degree. So who are you, who are you to, to know what's best for your loved one? And if you start feeling that sort of dynamic, that, that is a quite a red flag. And I think at those times when, if you're in a position with the the unethical kind that are part of this agenda, they're full force into this agenda. Do not argue it. I know for me, I, I you can't win. They're they're so vicious, and these individuals. If you follow, if you cross the path with these individuals, any nurse, physician, doctor, anybody, they will argue them that their position is right and that somehow they are doing the merciful thing. And I believe when placed in these positions, it, it certainly is a very dangerous position for your loved one to be. And that is a point where any family, you know, needs to recognize this, this is not a good situation. We are not going to win here, and we do need to go ahead and create a team, as you've mentioned, perhaps with a, a nurse or a physician that you did feel heard and, get your loved one out of that situation if, if that is the case. One uh, very practical thing you can do is request a, a plan of care meeting. This is something that may be called something different at different facilities, but the concept is the same. It is a, is a meeting where the patient's physician, the social worker, perhaps like any other therapy staff, like speech therapy, physical therapy, and the nursing staff all get together uh, with with the family and they and the person, the loved one, they should participate as well, and they'll go over their entire plan of care. And at this time, it should provide everyone an opportunity to discuss, you know, where we're at, what are our problems, what are our concerns, and where are we going? And this also gives family a chance to see if the value system is just not lining up, if you're just really being shut down, if you're not being listened to, then certainly that is that is a huge red flag. Um, anytime that medications are asked or offered, you can certainly request time to research it yourself and suggest it. Uh, there is it's not always an emergency situation, certainly in medical conditions. Sometimes there is a time-sensitive nature, but if we're not talking like a ER accident type of situation, you have time. You know, nobody should be pressuring you to make a decision and really do just know that you do not have to do anything that you're not comfortable with and that patient always has a right to refuse something that they're not comfortable with and you always have time to take a step back 
and really check in with your team. You know, again, those people that, that we mentioned, perhaps it be that ethical nurse, perhaps it be um, through other resources that you've researched to reach out to your team and really question, does this make sense for my loved one's plan of care? You, you have time to do that. Well, and I think that's, you know, part of it that people feel like once their loved one has been taken into hospice environment that you have given up any of your rights to make any decisions, and that's just not true. And that is, that's that what is, that we, is not true. Right, and we don't know that. You know, mm-hmm. we kind of think, well, you know, we're in this situation, we have to remain. You do not have to remain, and if you see the red no. flags, even in in my mom's situation when she was already starting down the coma, if we had known, we would have taken her to the hospital and given her um, narco and gotten her out of that opioid coma that she was in. But we didn't know that, and that's why, sure. you know, why I talk like I do. That's why I have the shows. That's why Marty does what she does, because it is trying to educate people so they don't go through what we went through because mm-hmm. it is horrible to watch your mm-hmm. loved one be murdered. And and not yes. every hospice, hospital, nursing home has you and people like you that value life. Mm-hmm. So it's, it, it is difficult. But, I mean, what you're giving us some really very, very good information. And, it, you know, on one, one point, too... Along with that is, you know, a person does not, I, for me to pass, if it's, if it's God's time for me, I don't have to pass on quote unquote hospice. And so if your community hospice is not one that is a pro-life hospice, as many are not, and perhaps your loved one is at a facility, perhaps you are very happy with the, the person's primary physician or the physician of that facility, you could request one of those meetings and just say, I'm very happy with our care team. I don't feel like hospice care would add anything. Would we be able to consider managing mom or dad or my brother or, or our loved one until the end of their life without making them quote unquote hospice? Um, that is another possibility and that I have seen be successful in some situations and certainly you could always check in and just consult with home care services and see what needs to be arranged to provide care for this person at home and um, if your loved one is in the facility creating some sort of like a rotational visit with family, um, having frequent check-ins by family, if, you know, collaborate with the staff, like, is it okay? Like, I, I like to push mom to dinner. Are there any special directions with her diet? I want to help feed mom um, and really just be, be a part of the care and be present, especially during times of transition. So like if they just had surgery or they just uh, had a fall or a fracture, they're very vulnerable at this point, and that's often when those medications will sneak in. So having a advocate there for that patient at the bedside, um, not even necessarily in an adversarial sense, just having somebody there to firsthand see what is going on and it almost be a gatekeeper as to what medications are being given, what adjustments are being made, that is, it is so valuable. And um, just 
really collaborating with them. And I've seen so many situations with folks who perhaps even did have Alzheimer's and they have a lot of behavioral problems. And the families are often forced into a position like if you don't consent to these meds, we don't have the staffing, we don't have the resources to keep this person safe. So you need to go ahead and consent to these meds. So certainly any support the family can give of, you know, just being there to sit with the individual and assist in that way, that may help uh, help that collaboration and, and help keep the person from being over-medicated. Right. And it is difficult. I mean, some people cannot stay home and have, you know, they're working and they're, you know, aging parent or mm-hmm. sibling or whatever needs help. And they have to have, you know, like you were talking about with the Alzheimer's, that they have to have somebody physically there with them all the time. And they're working a full-time yeah. job. They can't quit sure. their job and stay at home. So there are situations where the person has to be put into a facility Absolutely. and we've all seen what is going on in some of the facilities and some people have started, you know, putting cameras in. Um, mm-hmm. I, it, fortunately, my dad is not there. He lives with me, but if mm-hmm. for some reason he was in one, I'm going to have a camera there. And if they mm-hmm. didn't, if they knew that certain rooms had cameras, but they didn't know which rooms they were, then it sure. might make people behave a little bit better. Right. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. So, but you're right, if you're not checking on that or if there's not somebody there that's rotating in and watching what's happening and, you know, if they bring a plate of food in there but the person isn't capable of reaching over and getting the plate and feeding themselves, they're not going to be fed. So mm-hmm. that's something that, you know, you would have to have somebody who comes in perhaps and feeds them, but that's not to say sure. that they should not receive general care because no. they have Alzheimer's. You know, so sure. you just say, well, you know, it's okay to euthanize them. It isn't. No. It isn't and, at and all. And there's almost an accountability. Like if I know, okay, if I, if like, and this is how, this is how many healthcare workers think. If I know that like Mr. So-and-so's daughter is going to come in every night after work. She does work full time, but I know after work she comes in and she checks on her dad. She will, you know, she's very kind. She'll always check in with us for an update. They're going to be more prepared. Unfortunately, I mean, that that's truly the truth of the matter. They're going to be more prepared. And so we better be prepared to give, give the daughter a report of how, how dad did. And we know that she's going to be checking in. And um, so, so in those ways, you know, families, can be such a blessing to their loved ones to just help advocate and, and be there. And it's, it's, it's very sad to think of it in that way. It's very sad to think that the patients who may not have frequent check-ins or whatever may get somewhat ignored. Um, but unfortunately, in healthcare, sometimes that, that does happen. And it's that very heartbreaking sure. to think of. It is a fact. Right. And, and they're isolated. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, if they don't have an advocate for them, then there's nobody looking after them, and they are going to be the ones that are ignored. Yeah. So, but not meaning to put you on the spot, but and many of us have asked this, you know, we think of angels of mercy, and, you mm-hmm. know, when we watch the nurse, there are certain nurses that, in a mom's situation, that I just believe have absolutely no conscience whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And I, I hold them personally responsible for what happened to my mom. So 
Mm-hmm. Are there nurses that know this is happening, they don't care that it's happening, they're jaded by everything, and they're committing murder, they really know they're doing that, or are they that ignorant? I believe, Marcia, that it's a combination of these individuals, and I, I, I do believe that they're, without a doubt, are people that are so evil and wicked. Um, oftentimes there are people at a higher level that 100% know the agenda. They know what they're paving the way for, what they're paving the way for people to pick up and follow, and they are fully aware of these murders that are taking place. And they, without a doubt, do it, and they do it gladly, and they they are just, so evil that they really relish in that. A, a second category of individuals is our folks that are fully on board with this this, this trail that has been paved um, for this this death culture and this stealth euthanasia. But they truly believe that it's a moral action. And I find working with at the bedside. At nurses' stations, I have walked so many halls in hospitals at various healthcare facility, facilities throughout the U.S. I have found that at a bedside level, I would say this is one of the prevailing types of uh, individual that I, I run into. They are people that their morality has become so flipped that they really do believe they're somehow an angel of mercy, and this predominant mercy killing culture mindset has been so integrated in the medical community. It's been so integrated through nursing. It, you know, it be, it's an indoctrination. It begins in nursing school and all the way throughout that I, I truly believe that they really think they're doing a service. They, they're just helping somebody usher along. And it's not even in the sense of like, well, I'm just going to kill this person. There have been so many either at late late night conversations at the nurse's desk or just comments while charting that they wish that this for themselves. And so they have no problem pushing this agenda for somebody else. And, you know, these comments just range for if I ever have to be at a facility or if I'm ever just old, like once, like once my fun in life is done and I'm just old, you know, just end it. Just give me a good dose of something or just flip a gun under my bed for me or something. And so they, they hold this belief in their own life. And, and what right do they have to put that on, on another person? And it's very horrifying. And I, I, I find frequently at the bedside level that this idea prevails and in this idea of I don't want them to suffer and it's and by encouraging pain medications and things like that they're they're very zealous in it it's it's very frightening to see how uh, zealous they do get in pushing pushing that agenda and I do believe that they they truly have become so flipped mentally that they believe that lie and and it's it's very heartbreaking and again it's very it's a very dangerous place for people to be and and I think another a third class of individuals is people that see it they're not they do see it they do see it for what it is they're not comfortable with it they may say well I don't want any part of that 
but they're also not going to speak against it. They're not going to confront those nurses. They're not going to confront those doctors. Um, they're not really going to, they'll just be quiet, you know, around families because we just want to, you know, it's, it's like the mentality is, well, well, I just want to get through my shift or get through my day. And, you know, the complacency is very, is very frightening because, you know, really to not stand against it is really just as guilty as, being part of it and to not do anything and to not warn people and to not try to protect those that may not have a voice or that voice was taken away from them. Um, you, you know, you, a person becomes just as guilty. Well, is there, um, sorry, I had to call. Is there in doing this, what about when they're looking at the individual family, the family members, and they're devastated because they are trying to save their loved one. Is there no compassion for that either? I mean, how can they, you know, when you're saying, you know, I want to take my mom home, I, you know, I want to take mm-hmm. my husband home, he was fine, he was walking, you know, yeah. until he got in here, and now he can't walk. And how can they justify the inhumaneness of that when you want to take your loved one home and they know that that loved one is not in there because they have Mm -hmm. a disease that they're dying from in the next day or two. I mean, how can they do that? My answer for that was the first category of people that know fully well and that know that this is murder. I believe that they are just so wicked that that, outcry from the family um, is just, it, it, they're just not phased by it because they're going to proceed with this agenda and that's just what they set out to do. As sickening and as wicked as that is and I believe for the second class of people that I explained kind of the angel of mercy culture, it it in healthcare it, and this begins, this begins very early in school, you know, the indoctrination of like the, they give explanations for the family's reaction, that compassion is numbed, what seems very obvious and very uh, morally sound and what makes sense, it, it's completely flipped and it, those families are looked at as um, perhaps, you know, they're, they're grieving irrationally, they're hanging on to hope that they should shouldn't hang on to all of yes all of that is a complete lie but that is how it's rationalized they are they're not being reasonable like mom is 90 but mom didn't come in here actively dying it was induced and and right the explanation given is it's like you know the family just can't let go like the the person's hospice what do they expect the hospice the, the person's lived their life just let them go like let them go in peace and so this death culture is so such a like a part that's been ingrained and it, it's very frightening because it, it is so set in so many um providers minds and 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 that's I hope that sheds a little bit of light as to, unfortunately, just how, how wicked the thinking is and how backwards it's become. But when they look at the grieving family just kind of crying out, it really is put out there that they're being irrational, they're not wanting to let go, things things like that. And so there is no compassion for them because no. you need to continue to tell them that this individual is dying and they're in pain. So I would think that, you know, as in for yourself, because that's not the way you think, so you would have two choices. You could either 
go find another job and decide that being a hospice nurse or dealing with, you know, people in a nursing home that might wind up in that situation, that you might be a nurse that says, I can't deal with this, I'm going to walk away from it. Or Mm -hmm. you're a nurse that says, I do not want to actively participate in this and I want to be a voice against it because it goes Mm -hmm. against all my beliefs in doing this and and I'm going to help wherever I can. Sure. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, You know, that's a position we're faced with and, and it is something that nurses need to decide. And if this is a facility and if this is a culture that is okay with this, that's not somewhere I want to be. And that's not somewhere where help will be given to people. The alarm will not be sounded to to individuals in that environment. Um, And it certainly, the message needs to be told and it it needs to be shared to, to to warn people. Right, right. So with the nurses, is there statistically, because you're saying that they're trained for this, mm-hmm. is it an, I don't mean to say it, say it like this, but is there an age <laughs> thing? Is it a certain age that, you know, when somebody comes in, you know, they're, they're young, so that nurses that are, say, you know, 35 and under would have this indoctrination, whereas a nurse who was, you know, maybe 45 or 50 might not, be that way because they weren't trained that way or would it be across the board you might run into any age of nurse that would be that way because they all receive the same training that's a really really great question and I've I've seen this mentality across the board so I have seen nurses that have been very much senior to me they've been practicing longer than I've been alive and they hold true to this kind of angel of mercy idea this this pro-euthanasia this is the way that they practice this is the way that they see it and even like who am I who am I to question that who am I to stand against it you know this sort of a thing Uh, that's stated as a whole, I have seen quite a change in our profession, um, and I, some of my most dear friends are retired from the profession, and they're they're many many years my senior, and they've seen the profession profession change, and 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 certainly it is noted just just really the the lack of compassion that a lot of the younger nurses have, and that's not. I'm not excluding. I know some wonderful young nurses um, just out of school and and in the road ahead. I, I they really don't know what they're up against. It, it it's 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 quite something. But that stated, um, just you see the lack of compassion and you see the system as a whole. The, the primary care model where the nurse would have just a select group of patients and she would be the primary caregiver. She would do the wound changes. She would do the medication task. She would do the, the bed baths, the um, the feeding, all of that. That model is long gone. And it's, it's now really nurses because of budget constraints. You have certified nursing assistants that will come in. It's a very, it's minimal. It's a certificate training. They will come in and do all those, those tasks that help you assess the patient, like assisting them with the bath or getting to, you know, you kind of, you really develop a relationship with somebody just assisting them in their activities of daily living. And it's a wonderful way for a nurse to assess a patient, but those days are really gone in nursing and, and nursing, the staff are 
are given just these heavy, heavy patient loads. And, and there are so, so many benefits nurses can make, you, you know, they, they're, jobs that pay insurance, there are jobs that pay pretty well, um, there's opportunity in different avenues of nursing to really bring home a big paycheck, but unfortunately, that often produces people who are in it for that, and they really, it's very, very apparent, they may have the skills, so they may have the knowledge, they may pass their nursing boards, they may be able to dictate how to remove sutures and how to do all the skills of nursing, but they clearly lack that compassion and that respect for life. And, and I see that in a genera- generational sense and even just the younger generations, they, you know, it, it, it's frightening to, to see that link of caring and compassion being lost and being, being replaced by, by this, this culture of death. And it, it's frightening to think of what several do- generations down the road will look like in, in, in healthcare. Well, it it is, and I don't know. I know you don't do Facebook, but um, recently I saw in a pod where they're coming up with a pod that will be that you have a gas chamber and you will be put in the pod and you listen to music, you know, kind of like um, Soylent Green, and mm-hmm. gases will come out and will actually gas the person, and then they'll take that pod and then that becomes their coffin. And this oh, is something wow. that they're developing in Europe. And I'm like, what? How did we get here? And I know we've been yeah. getting here for a long time, mm-hmm. but when we look at it like that, that you know, we're just going to put somebody in a pod, gas them, use that as their coffin. And wow. there's a um, a group, a, a Facebook group, Oh Hell, I'm a Hospice Nurse or something like that. Mm-hmm. And they actually, it's very satire. And they have all of these jokes about it. You know, if you if you make me mad, I'll just give you another shot of morphine. And, you know, yeah. and they joke about it. It's To them, it's funny. And they know what they're talking about. They're talking about ending people's lives. And Absolutely. they talk about it as though it's a joke. Yes. And that's something I believe at an earlier episode, Marty actually mentioned. And she mentioned the joke, I believe, of, you know, we you need to get on the van the Ativan. And it breaks my heart to share that I have heard that saying so many times throughout my career. And, you know, the, the, the jokes, the satire, like, you know, you're a nurse. If you've ever wanted to write a book, like how to commit suicide, right. The first time that's referring to people who may have made more than one overdose attempt, like insinuating that that person just should have went through with it, that there are a waste of resources, all these kind of things. And it's very sickening. Um, it, it's incredibly sickening. And yes, I, I can validate that all of that satire and all of those those cruel jokes. Right. Those occur. Well, and talking, those occur. Um, I think we've heard before about, you know, giving somebody a ham sandwich if they yes. don't behave, you know, the Haldol, mm-hmm. Ativan, and Morphine. And yes. um, Marty had talked earlier about this, that she had seen, you know, gone to some place where they were talking about being hospice volunteers, and they would actually tell the hospice person to tell the individual who's there that they're given these drugs to, 
you don't want to hold on. You don't want to continue living. Look at, you know, your family. You just need to, you know, go away you because your family is tired of taking care of you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's a big burden on them. You don't want to be a burden. Why don't you just let go? Yeah. And then they talk to the family, telling the family that your loved one has lived a long life. They're tired. You're keeping them on, and they're ready to go, and you're still holding them here, so you need to let them go. So it is a brainwash that they do mm-hmm. on the patient and on yes. the family. And it's the same words that they use for each, mm-hmm. you know, across each state. Mm-hmm. You know, the same drugs, the same lies, the same wording that they are using across every state, well, across the country. And, yes. you know, where we get to the point where we totally devalue human life is uh, how do we get here? Yes. It's 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 frightening and it is just it 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 is really it is it's just frightening and it, it is such a wicked spirit and it, absolutely it's how did we how did we get here mm-hmm. and we're here I mean mm-hmm. it's not futuristic that we're talking about no. we are here no. where people are being murdered every day and yes euthanasia because it's done straight in front of your face and you have absolutely no clue that it's happening Mm -hmm. so um, I know we've still got a few more things to talk about but um, I wanted to open it up if anybody has a question um, or a comment to our nurse and you want to talk if you push one on your phone it will put you in a queue and then Marty will bring you in so are there any questions out there yes yeah, Marcia, you're on the air, yes. but I have lost the board. I don't know what's happened here, but I'm blanking out. Like I say, you're still on the air, but I can't see anything. So, okay. Uh, I'm, I, if you've got a caller right now, I can't tell. I don't know what's happened. But I say you're okay. still live, so go ahead. All right. We'll go ahead. We won't take a call then if they can't call in. <laughs> we won't do that. Um, but it, But it is a... It's not a generational thing because, as you said, it's, it's nurses of all different ages that are buying mm-hmm. into this that the person has lived their life and it's time to let them go. And it, it doesn't really matter what their age is. And if they've gone to the hospital several times, they are starting to cost money. And I think in the beginning um, you had talked about how this is coming from high up and trickling down is the trickle down effect that mm-hmm. people are trying to save money. And if you're in a hospital where someone comes in, you know, three or four times in the year, then the hospital has taken a hit because yeah. obviously they didn't treat that person right or that person should then have been a hospice person should come in and talk to the patient and their family and try to talk them into coming into hospice. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yes. And, so there, um, yeah, that's that's the agenda. Once they've been in so many times, and it, it does become the person is not making the system money in a sense, then it's almost like they're turned over to hospice. And you mentioned before, you know, in reference to the baby boomer population and just different funding that's been allotted to hospice it really shows the agenda and it really shows almost 
the space that's being made way for this to continue to happen and to happen in, the, in an even larger scale, unfortunately. It's, it's frightening. Well, it is. And the baby boomers, as they come up, they need a place to execute them. Mm-hmm. And that, that is what it is. And they need to have more hospices out there so that the baby boomers have more places to go because the current hospices could not handle them all. Um, where my mother was, I believe they had four rooms at, the, at this um, facility and one wing of it. There was only like four rooms, so maybe five. But at that particular time, if you were going to have somebody in the hospice environment in their actual facility, you could only have four or five people. So mm-hmm. in the baby boomers, if there's so many, if there's, you know, 20 people that you're trying to get rid of, then you need to have 20 different rooms. So they're talking about infusing um, $441 million into coming up with more hospices across all of the states. And it's a huge money-making, even if they say that they're for nonprofit, there's a huge money-making deal here, and individuals are buying up. I know there's a... Um, one of our people guests that was on in Cincinnati, Ohio, that the guy there has bought three or four more hospice facilities and nursing homes. Mm-hmm. So it, it is a big business. It is. There will always be people that need medicine, and there will always be people that are dying. So if you go into that field, you're going to guarantee that you're going to be making money. And that's what it's about, making money, saving money. Mm-hmm. And we've just seen it, you know, in the Nova situation in Texas, the situation in Ohio where the guy was giving them large doses of fentanyl. They were dying within minutes, and it, it is happening across. And yet even those big cases, they get shoved down. You don't hear any more about them. No. And they're not on you know, the major media, we just hear about, yeah. you know, every now and then a newspaper article or a Facebook article, it's major media is not picking these stories up and running Never. with them because it's uncomfortable. Yeah. And they don't want people to know because they're saving no. money by not paying Medicare. Absolutely. And Medicaid. And it's hitting across it. Mm-hmm. So... Um, but is there anything else that you wanted to add? You've been absolutely excellent on this, nurse. Um, Thank you. But I uh, wanted to ask you if there's anything else that you want no, to add. Just thank you for the opportunity for me to, to be here tonight. And I just really want to just mention, you know, any families that are dealing with these things and just really bring, you know, out what a wonderful resource um you have here through this show, as as well as the Hospice Patients Alliance. You've you've made reference to that website. It's a wonderful, wonderful resource, and there's just so much in there regarding the legalities and resources for families. And so, truly, um, those are just such blessings and such a resource to people dealing with these sort of issues. Absolutely, and and that is absolutely true. They we have Marty Oakley talk show, TS Radio. You can go back and listen to previous um, shows that we've had talking to different people. There is www.hospicepatients.org. We also have Life Guardians 
LifeLegalDefenseFoundation.org that has lots of information. Life Legal Defense Foundation that are excellent sites to go to. Or if you just Google Stealth Euthanasia, you will come up with a lot of different information. Um, we've talked in the past about organ donation and how that is very dangerous, that they are actually mm-hmm. euthanizing people to take their organs. Yes. This is not Robin Cook or Stephen King. It is reality. It's happening. Yes. Um, if you have on your driver's license that you want to be a donor, you need to consider changing that. And you also want to check Dr. Byrne um, has information out about organ donation, Dr. Paul Byrne, and that was Life guardianfoundation.org and you can go out there and get a form to fill out that says I do not want to be an organ donor the power of attorney medical power of attorney you need to make sure that's somebody who cares about you and doesn't want you to die and in that documentation you can also put that no hospice that you don't want hospice to be involved Mm -hmm. and again all hospices are not bad but there are a lot of them that are, and you're going to need to do your homework on that. Mm-hmm. One of the things that Dr. Paul Byrne, um, the neonatalist, had said is to list down that you're allergic to Ativan or Seroquel, Haldol, mm-hmm. you know, the, the antipsychotic drugs. It's, you know, you list that down. And, and there are cases, Von Panzer has talked about, there are cases when you do need those drugs and in small doses, but you need to know when those cases are. So like our guest told us earlier, check your medications. You know, tell the doctor you want to take the time to do some research on that. So there are things you can do, but you have to have the knowledge to do them and pass the word to other people. Um, you know, hopefully we reach a lot of people. Yes? You could I insert something here? Um, Absolutely. Listening to this about li- listing things out that you know you don't want to be subjected to, if you or anyone is admitted to the hospital, and you know how they always have the back of the monitor to you and say sign this electronically at your admission form, you make them print that off and give it to you Good in point. hard copy. Now they're going to argue with you, but they have a printer sitting right there. You tell them print it off. I don't sign anything. I can't read first. You'll get the response, oh, it's just a general admission for, I don't care. If that's all it is, then print it off. Shouldn't be a problem. Um, Look for the word biologics in there. Uh, Biologics now covers experimental blood transfusions, vaccines of any and all kinds. Um, We do not vaccinate. My family does not vaccinate. We don't have any of the related illnesses to vaccines either. but you need to to cross that word biologics out, draw a line out to the side in the margin and say, I do not agree to biologics of any kind. Because this isn't a word that has been inserted into that admission form that allows you to, the hospital, the doctors, to override all of your medical directive and do whatever they damn well want. Um, mm-hmm. Many people Good. have been put in surgery and while under anesthetic, been vaccinated half to death. Um, and they tried this uh, with my granddaughter here about a year and a half ago. And the other mm-hmm. thing I want to say, too, is uh, if you're in hospice, 
Um, your family has the right to be with you 24 hours a day. They cannot make you leave. And uh, family can be there with them 24 hours a day. Uh, mm-hmm. And somebody needs to be with them because once you leave, they will come in, um, again, from my own experience with them, my granddaughter, in the middle of the night with a tray full of needles and drugs and tried to administer. And the mm-hmm. response I got from the nurse when I said, what the hell is that, is, well, doctor wants her to have it. I don't give a damn what doctor wants. What is it? And mm-hmm. I well, doctor wants it. I said, well, then doctor is fired. And um, so, uh, but but these are things people need to be aware of, the trickery that's going on in advance of this stuff. And learn what you're signing. Don't sign anything you can't get a hard copy of and read first. And I mean right. read it. It will shock you what's in there. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. I just well, had to the add DNR, that. The DNR also, you do not want to have a, you do not want to sign a DNR. And if they have one on you, Ask them for it, because if you've signed it in the past, ask for it and rip it in half, because that means they are not going to do just general, you know, help for you. They won't give you anything. They will just let you die. So DNRs, that used to be a safe thing to do. Everybody did it. Now it is not safe to have a DNR. And you can revoke hospice anytime you want. You can revoke hospice. So our time is running out. We will be back next week on August the 21st with Camille Giglio, California Right to Life Committee. And I hope to see everybody back then. Thank you to our guests very much. You have enlightened me a lot, and I hope the other people. And thank you to our listeners for joining us. Marty, as always, thank you. You're welcome. Any day. <laughs> okay. Thank right. you, Marcia. And hopefully y'all Thank got you, the information. Marcia. If you have a story that you want to tell, uh, Marsha Joyner2018 at gmail.com. Thank you. <laughs>